Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And I know I say this every single show, but I'm really excited for this show. We've got a lot of good Sun stuff to talk about. They are on a tear right now. And we've also got a really good movie to discuss in Judas and the Black Messiah. So a lot of exciting stuff happening this weekend. And I'm really happy to have this particular guest with me. He is the host of the Sports Cave he is one of my favorite people to talk to about hoops or just anything in general on the Suns beat. Mr. Paul Richardson, how are you doing today? Yo, what's up, Joe? Thanks for having me tonight. Absolutely. Happy to have you on the show. Um, I feel like it's a little bit weird now because we used to see each other a lot more often. And now with the pandemic and everything, the Suns media room is a little bit different these days. We miss having you around in there, man. You know, it's, it's weird because you were my uh, GQ dress guy. So <laughs> now I feel uh, I feel good in my t-shirts because you know I don't have to go man I'm going to game and I know G's going to be all geared up and <laughs> high and everything and I'll be walking in with my jeans and my jeans and who knows what's on my t-shirt for the day so I, I don't I don't have I don't have fashion goals right now but that's okay you're the you're a welcoming presence in the sun's <laughs> beat room man um cool. But let's uh, let's dive right into our first topic. Obviously, the Suns have been on a tear. They won nine of their last ten and six straight. Um, they just had two of their best wins of the season over the Bucks and the Sixers. And then tonight, they just blew out the Magic, which in the past this might have been a kind of trap game for them. And the good news doesn't stop there because Dario Saric is back in the lineup. Paul, I feel like a lot of people don't really or maybe it was easy to forget how important he is to their bench and to their success. What, what did you like about Sharch's first couple of games back and just how he fills that kind of role off the bench for them? I like Dario because he can do whatever you need him to do. If you need him to come in uh, for DA for a while, he can do that and he's not going to get overmatched too long when he's doing that. If you need him to come in and play power forward, he can. If you need him to play three for a while, excuse me he can so he is the ultimate glue guy basically like whatever you need from dario if he doesn't get a shot up it doesn't affect him if he gets five shots up it, it doesn't affect him he's hmm. he's gonna do what he does and i think it's kind of cool because we've been covering this team a long time and there have been so many quote unquote glue guys who become unglued if they're not getting their way on one end of the court, Dario just does whatever you ask him to do. And I think to have a successful team, you got to have that one guy that is talented, but doesn't mind filling whatever role you need that night. So um, I, I just love what he means to this team and the way he plays and the way he accepts whatever they ask of him that night. Yeah. I mean, we won't throw anybody under the bus in terms of supposed glue guys, you know, like Trevor Ariza, but uh, <laughs> has been, he's been exactly that. And, and Monty always calls him, he calls him and Frank Kaminsky a connector off the bench as these guys, well, I guess Kaminsky's starting now, but 
as these guys that come in, can move the ball, can make plays off the dribble, just do all of these little things that make the Suns bench so effective. And, and they have a lot of guys like that off the bench, but I think uh, a lot of people's eyes were open, especially in that Philly game, as to how much they kind of missed him coming off the bench. No offense to Damian Jones, but when you can fill those backup five minutes with Sharich instead of, you know, Kaminsky or Damian Jones, you're doing pretty well. In, in that first game back, he had 15 points, four assists, two rebounds, four steals, a block, shot five of 10. And Embiid was having his way. Like he, he went off in that game. But Sharich kind of made him work for it. And he there was even a stretch where he was kind of going toe-to-toe with him against his old teammate. Um, I mean, how how much of an upgrade is that for the Suns when they can just look to Sharich in that backup five spot, even if he is physically outmatched sometimes, just what he's able to bring with his skill and his kind of finesse play? Well, I just think he's a very smart player. And I think he got overlooked a lot when he was in Philadelphia because he had so many other names there people forgot what he what he could do and so he comes here and last year if we're honest didn't start the way we wanted last year to start and after the break and after everything kind of shook down with with Kelly and with everything else he was able to really find his groove especially in the bubble and show exactly not just his skill set uh physically but but mentally and I think Mm -hmm. that's a lost aspect of the game because yeah, there's no way he's going to match up against Embiid. I mean, let's let's be honest. <laughs> and, and there, there are centers that don't match up against Embiid, but mm-hmm. he's able, like you said, to hold his own and then do certain things that, that will give Embiid trouble just because he's smart enough to do it. And so those are the things that I look for uh, when, you, when I'm looking at, at him. And that's why I think him coming back, you have a guy now, like I said, to come in and spell three positions. That's mm-hmm. that's a lot and spell three positions well. So that that's that's a lot. And I think if I go back even further, there was a game. I'm trying to remember who the Suns were playing, but oh, it was Denver. Um, mm-hmm. And DA got in foul trouble, and Jokic was just having his way with with Frank. Mm-hmm. That's the game where I think the Suns really realized, wow, <laughs> <laughs> this is a game we we can use Dario in. That's that's no disrespect to, to Frank because Jokic is Jokic, right. but that was a moment where. Dario would have really, really come in handy. Absolutely. And you know, what's scary is his shot hasn't really been falling. I mean, he shot one for four from three in the first game back. And then I think he was two for seven tonight against the magic. So, I mean, he just does so many, like you said, smart things on the floor, as far as making plays, reading the defense, moving the ball where it needs to be. It doesn't always show up on the stat sheet, but he is a great guy for that. Um, Our next topic kind of building off of that, you know, having Sharich back is great, but the Suns were never going to reach their ceiling unless their two star players started to show out. And Mm -hmm. ever since the Suns fell to eight and eight and Monty went on kind of that, that post game media rant (laughs) about consistency. I don't know if you were on that one, but I was on that one. Oh yeah. That's kind of scary, right? (laughs) You know what? I was like, why is anyone raising their hand? The man has already said <laughs> consistency is the answer. That's why I love Kellen Olsen. He was like, nope, I'm good. Yep. <laughs> Kellen was smart. He got the hell out of there. Like, he was like, nope, I got nothing. Um, but Monty was just, I mean, he was on one. He wanted to emphasize that consistency was it. And it was what a lot of Suns fans had been saying, too. You know, like, if we see it as fans, you know that these guys see it in the locker room and on tape as mm-hmm. far as 
coughing up these big leads and stuff like that. But ever since then, they have been, I mean, that's when they went on their nine and one spree that they're currently on since they fell to eight and eight since that tirade that Monty went on. And uh, the key to that has obviously been their two best players playing like legitimate all-stars. So, I mean, what have you seen from Booker and CP3 in terms of just their comfort with each other and, and how well they've been playing lately? Uh, okay, so two things. One, I'll start with, with Monty. It's amazing when a quiet coach goes off because oh, yeah. then he's really listened to because it's like, wow, we've really pissed him off. Now let's, mm-hmm. let's figure out how to step this up with book. It's going to sound weird when I say this, but I'm glad he's actually being a little bit more selfish. Um, th- there are times where I think he defers too much to team. I-, I don't think there's any reason in a flow of a game, not, not just, I'm going to go get 25 shots. Not, not that guy. We see that guy <laughs> on a whole bunch of teams in the NBA. But I honestly think in the flow of a game, he can really get to 20, 25 shots. And I think when he's in that range, uh, close to 20, it helps everybody else because the defense pays so much attention to what he does. And now you bring in Chris Paul, who's a guy that's going to walk into the Hall of Fame the second he hangs his his, his shoes up. Mm-hmm. By Monty doing a little bit more pick and rolling, I think has now got excuse me him more involved because what, what are you, you going to do with him? I mean, mm. he comes off the pick. Are you going to double him? Are you going to fall in DA's lap? Are you going to get back to the arc to, to book who now is driving and finishing either hand very strong? Mm. Or are you going to leave Mikhail wide open at the arc? So they they basically put themselves with just those two being more aggressive. They freed up everybody else. And so I think that's what it, that's basically what it took. Book to basically say, look, get, get me the ball. I'm going to do something good with it. And on the other hand, CP saying, get me some more pick and rolls. I can, I'll make sure everybody does well. And, and if you fall off of him, he shoots that free throw elbow <laughs> shot like it's a oh, waste. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just all falling in place. And I think a lot of that just had to come with growing together because there was really no real training camp. There was mm-hmm. really no no way for everyone to get on the same page without playing. And yeah, practice, I love the way people say practice, and I'm not gonna go off on Allen Iverson and say practice, practice, practice. <laughs> but the speed of the game is letting them see what they can do and how they can uh, get that comfort level with each other. And I think now we're seeing that, and now the Suns for the first time in a long time with Chris Paul coming off a pick, uh, pick and roll, and someone that can actually shoot coming off the pick and roll mm-hmm. uh, is basically saying, what poison do you want? Do you want this all-star? Do you want this hall of famer? Do you want this up and coming guy? Like which one of these do you want tonight? Because whichever one you want, that's the one we're going to give it to. Yep. And and which, you know, three point sniper, are you going to leave open in the corner? (laughs) Which uh, seven foot rolling big man are you going to have to try and guard at the bit at the rim? It's a, it's a real problem, especially because they're so aggressive. And I think they just had to go through that kind of, initial feeling out process where you know it looked very much like they were trying not to step on each other's toes in the first couple games um you know there was a lot of the my turn your turn type stuff that we kind of saw with Harden and uh Chris Paul when they played together especially at the start um but I I wanted to throw some numbers your way because they're pretty staggering so book in those first 16 games when they went eight and eight he was averaging like 23 points four assists 
Um, and he was shooting like 47% from the field and 34% from three in the last eight games that he's played since the Suns have gone on this, you know, nine and one spree He's averaging 27 points, four and a half assists, four rebounds, shooting just under 53% and 41% from three. And Chris Paul has increased his game too. He went from 15 points to 20 points. The assists are a little bit down, but I think that's because Devin's taken on a little bit more playmaking um, and he's shooting 53% from the floor and 45% from three in the last nine games that he's played, which is way up from the 29% he was shooting early on. And like you were mm-hmm. noting, he's just been automatic in that mid range lately, which is kind of what we expected coming into the season. Um, it, it felt like he, it took some time for him to get going. And I'm not sure if Booker missing those three games with the hamstring was kind of a blessing in disguise. It let Booker heal. And in those three games, you saw Chris Paul just take the wheel and be like, all right, F it. Like <laughs> it's my yeah. turn. Like I need to take charge again. And uh, so they've just looked more aggressive and if they can figure that chemistry out, that's going to be, cause they've been effective staggering those two, but if they start to get in a groove where they can be on the floor together and not be a net negative, that's going to be huge for the Suns come playoff time. You know, there's something that I, I've, I've always liked in this type of play. And I know you and I have talked about it before. I, I grew up a Mike fan, obviously, and I've been a Kobe fan and it's, it's okay when you have that Booker talent to be a mother be. It's okay. It's okay to go out there and 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 be a, a level of aggressiveness and have your team come along with you. And and I think he's learning there are spots where you can you can do that. And as DA said tonight, you know, he's the baby franchise, he's the baby of this of this yeah. franchise. It's, it's his. He's been here forever. And and I don't think in those moments where he's saying, just give me the ball. <laughs> I don't think anyone on the team is going to look at him and say, oh, man, you know, we got it. It's like, no, give him the ball. And they're like, let him do his, let him cook, let him do his thing. And he's mm-hmm. earned that uh, from what he's done and what he showed. And, and honestly, I don't think there's a young star in a league that has had the patience that Devin Booker's had to go through that many coaches, that many systems, that many all that, and still wants to be a part of this team, this organization, and be the catalyst to take them to that next level. So mm-hmm. I think he's earned the right to be a mother beeper when he wants to be. Oh, absolutely. And especially because this year he's not, you know, he he'll take over when he needs to, but for the most part, he hasn't been, you, you know, like, I don't want to say that he was stat hunting in the past because that's definitely not the case, but he's playing, you know, he's playing more defense. He's just making the right mm-hmm. reads. It, it seems like the game is coming naturally to him especially lately and yeah his stats are down but his team's success is way up he doesn't have to you know shoot a ton of shots every night but he's getting really good at knowing when he needs to take those shots um, when he needs to turn it on like we saw it against Philly we saw it again tonight against Orlando just early in the first quarter he had 17 first quarter points he outscored the magic by himself in that first period um and that's back-to-back games where we, we've seen him just launch from the logo because he's feeling it and knock that shot down. Like that is, I, I think that playing with Chris Paul, and I, I say this as the utmost comp- compliment to Chris Paul, like he is the game's best asshole. Like, he's just, yes. 
he's a jerk and he is going to compete and he's going to be that jerk that you hate playing against. And Devin, it's, I mean, Devin Booker's had that streak in him and I think it's starting to rub off on him a little bit more. Um, I'm very excited though, because the biggest thing for me is that I've really been looking at those splits between when they're sharing the floor versus when one of them is on and one of them is off. Um, because I think in the playoffs, it's helpful to be able to stagger, but if you can't have them on the floor at the same time, or if they're not as effective, you're not going to reach your ceiling. Um, so heading into tonight's game lineups with CP three and book on the floor were a minus 16 in total over just under 480 minutes together. Um, so they were minus 31 in the eight and eight start and they're plus 15 cents. And then they were plus 15 again tonight. So they're only minus one overall together now, thanks to this magic game. Um, but it feels like they're finding their groove of when they can be on the floor together. And when you've staggered them, when it's CP3 with no book, they're a plus 57. When it's book with no CP3, they're a plus 67. So it's getting to the point where as long as one of them is on the floor, the Suns are going to be outscoring their opponent by a pretty sizable margin, even though the sample sizes are a little bit smaller. Superstars mm. figure it out. Superstars have to worry about role players, so they don't lose their way. So even, even though there was a numbers discrepancies, and you know me, I'm not the biggest plus minus guy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you've known me a long time, you know that. But the one thing that I've always said is, if stars can start well and stars can finish well, the staggering throughout the game doesn't really bother me because you kind of want them to stagger throughout the game so they can both be rested to finish. Mm -hmm. So if CP if, if CP3 and Booker, like tonight, are starting out on fire, Book basically came out to me tonight and said, look, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm just going <laughs> to dagger this game. So in the fourth quarter, I can put, put some ice on my knees. But yep. <laughs> as long as they start well and finish well, I'm not really too concerned with the middle because that – that seems to have taken care of itself. Um, so that'll come together. Finishing mm -hmm. though, they're finishing games. And again, I'm gonna be like Booker on this one. I'm not gonna keep going back to the past. It's just mm -hmm. good to see that they're figuring it out. And, and if we're, and let's, let's be honest, even great teams had to figure out how to close. It, it, when, mm -hmm. when LeBron went to Miami that first year, they know how to close games. And they got, that team had three Hall of Famers. They had to figure it out together. So it doesn't worry me that this team is, is figuring that part out, but it's coming together and they're beating good teams. And that's mm -hmm. the one thing about this team that I like a lot. It had me a little worried when they lost in Detroit, beat Indiana, yeah. and then lost <laughs> in Washington because it seemed like they were playing their competition. When they played a mm -hmm. bad team, they played bad, poorly. When they played a good team, they played great. Now they're figuring out beat the hell out of the bad teams, get them out the way early so mm -hmm. you can rest up when you have a big game coming up. And that's how good teams get good. Yeah, they know they may lose a couple here and there, but they eat off the bad teams. And yep. this team is now figuring that out. Kick their ass early, rest <laughs> early. So then that way, Tuesday, now you can come ready to go and well rested. Absolutely. And that's a sign of a great team is taking care of inferior opponents and that you were right. It was a little worrisome, especially the way that they built up big leads and then let, you know, the Pistons claw back in. They got whopped by the Wizards, um, you know, the Thunder. The, these were all very winnable games that they just either no-showed or no-showed for the second half. So it's good to see them learn from those lessons. And I think in the long run, they'll be better off for it. 
Um, but I think that's going to wrap up our son's talk for today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So for our G rated segment today, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I have been looking forward to this movie since uh, it was last year. I think when I first saw the trailer for it um, for a number of reasons, uh, we're going to be talking about Judas and the black Messiah today, which is on HBO max until March 14th starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. And Paul, I wanted to have you on specifically because I felt like you could give us a different perspective. Um, you know, obvious context here. I'm a white dude that went to private Catholic school all his life. And I'm not even sure what it is, if it's a curriculum thing or if it's a my school thing, but like growing up in high school and middle school, when we took US history, there was probably like one page dedicated to the Black Panthers. And there was maybe one reference to Fred Hampton that he was, that he was killed. And it, uh, watching this movie, obviously, this is gonna be a lot of people's first time interacting with this story in, in a, such an affecting way. Now you are from Chicago, so this hits a lot closer to home for you. Watching this movie, how did you connect with it? And, and I mean, what, growing up, how prevalent was this story for you as far as, you know, what your parents told, taught you about interacting with the Chicago PD and just being careful as a black man growing up in Chicago? Yeah, okay, so here's what's weird. I kind of had a, a, a crazy grow up because mm -hmm. Like you said, you went to a Catholic school. I went to a Montessori, uh, mm -hmm. believe it or not. So you can't get more, um, <laughs> uh, I guess, the white the best phrase is Lily White than going on Montessori <laughs> in, in, the late, in, in the late 70s, early 80s. But the one thing that I will, I will give that school credit for is it's, it's openness to take on any and everything. So mm -hmm. even though I was actually for a stretch, the only black kid in, in, in my group, they had no issue on taking on things. But the, the education of Black Panthers actually came because I have a relative who actually went to a Black Panther meeting in the early really? 70s. And okay. what, what people think is they were just like, come join, this is what we're gonna do. They were very selective um, mm. from, from what I was told on who they chose in terms of a, of a mentality. So. When they went to the meeting, actually halfway through the meeting, uh, one of the Black Panther members walked up to uh, to my family member and said, "Yo, who are you?" And mm -hmm. he said the name. They're like, "Are you in college?" Uh, and he said, "Yeah, I am." They said, "Get out of this meeting, man. Go get your degree. This isn't this isn't for you. You're gonna do a lot more for us. Getting your degree, doing that. Uh, we we need you in a fight, but we need everyone to fight in their own way." And mm -hmm. so that story always stuck with me because when you hear the story of the Black Panthers, as told by the media, it was this <laughs> armed insurgents ready to shoot, kill, maim everybody. And, and that really wasn't, in my opinion, that wasn't it. It was a matter of, of taking pride and understanding that the laws of the land are, are, I guess here's the best way to say it. If you write the laws, you don't write the laws for the other person. You write mm -hmm. the laws for yourself. And I'm going to fast forward that to today just to give an example. So we have the Black Panthers who are 
who were looked at by the FBI, by the cops, by Secret Service, by everyone, mm-hmm. because, oh my God, we can't have these black people carry guns. No one talked mm-hmm. about, no one talked about First Amendment when the Black Panthers had guns. Mm-hmm. It was, there's no way all these black dudes can have guns. That's bad for the country. But we can have the Proud Boys be, yeah. be looked at and loved <laughs> by the president, by Congress, by whatever. And the first thing we hear is, oh, you can't take that First Amendment rights away. And so even just comparing then to now, you look at the difference. And as you grow up, you get those different rules. When you grow up and a police officer stops you, the first thing you do is check everything. Make sure your hands are free. Make sure that you're not uh, doing anything, any, uh, as we like to say, no herky-jerky movements, nothing that Mm -hmm. will bring any type of extra everything. I've been pulled over before just to ask where I was going. It's, it's not, it's not fun because you're like, why are you, why are you pulling me over? Oh, I just wanted to see where you're going. Well, well, why, you know, Mm -hmm. and, but you're taught to answer the question and move on. And Mm -hmm. it it, it keeps bringing you back to, I, I, I think about my uncle who's worked in basketball almost his whole life and was a firefighter driving a nice car, a police officer stops him and says, wow, you're, you're driving a real nice car there. Uh, how, how did you afford an Escalade? And he said, mm-hmm. you know, and my uncle is a, a different kind of dude. He said, none of your business how I, <laughs> I, I afford, I can afford my car. And he said, hey, don't get smart. He goes, I want to see your ID and I want you to take it out slowly. So he takes his ID out and when he opens it, his driver's license is on one side and his firefighter badge is on the other side. And so the cop looks at him and says, why didn't you just tell me you were a firefighter? And he said, why did I have to tell you I was a firefighter? Mm-hmm. I, I have a right to drive my car that I paid for where I wanted to without identifying myself as a Chicago city worker. Right. You know, and the cop was like, well, just go on about your business. He goes, go on about your business and leave me the F, you know, <laughs> leave me the F alone. But these are some of the rules that we grew up with in Chicago. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, and I don't want to give the movie away, but the, the, that was a flat out murder. It was mm-hmm. an assassination. It was set up. There's no secrets. It's never been a secret. Everyone in Chicago knows that. Um, mm-hmm. It was a life that was, that, that was taken. I mean, just because what you could not have um, was a 21-year-old Black male mm-hmm. able to get Black people together, get Black kids into programs, get Black kids into to lunches, food. Uh, you, you couldn't do that. And if you look at our history, you can have Malcolm X because he was quote-unquote too violent. Couldn't have mm-hmm. Medgar Evers because he had too many open ideas. Couldn't have Martin Luther King Jr. because he wanted to integrate and get everybody, get rid of desegregation. Couldn't have uh, uh, Huey Newton because he was too violent. Mm-hmm. So if you stop and look at history, no matter what Black man used what method, the police, the FBI, and the government always thought of a way that would be too dangerous. But when you stop and think, who were they too dangerous to? It wasn't they were too dangerous for anyone except the establishment that set the rules for themselves. And, and now here come these guys breaking the rules because they weren't made for us. It's funny how the KKK can be police officers, how mm-hmm. uh, QAnon can hold a Congress seat, how all these things can happen. But let a, a young Islamic woman become a Congresswoman, and oh my God, well. <laughs> 
the world has come to an end. Rules haven't changed. We mm-hmm. just dance around it a different way. And I think the, the biggest uh, uh, part is because there are so many affluent um, Black folks now, mm-hmm. it's almost like there's a segment that, that says, well, look, you guys make money. Well, yeah. But mm-hmm. you know what? Oh, you know yeah. the joke. The joke is, what do you call a, a black man driving a Cadillac versus a black man driving a Yugo? Uh, they're the same N-word. Hey, you call them the same thing when you pull them over. Mm-hmm. That's something that's just it, it, it's fact, and people don't want to hear that fact, but it's it's the truth. Right, and and that's that's what kind of struck me watching this is, I mean, for me, like I like I said, in high school, middle school, didn't know much about this. I remembered the name and then I took an African-American studies in college. And that's when I learned more about Fred Hampton's story. And so that's why I was excited for this movie to come out because like I said, I feel like for a lot of people, this is unfortunately gonna be their first time either interacting with his story or really experiencing it and understanding what Fred Hampton was even at the age of 21 which is incredible that he was that young um, and that the FBI and the government viewed him as that big of a a threat just for being you know this powerful orator and this guy who would organize these things Um, but that's the thing that struck me watching this is how sadly relevant so much of it was And, and it kind of same way that uh, I don't know if you saw the trial of the Chicago seven, but that movie kind of struck me the same way as far as man, everything that's going on here is still 100% relevant today. And not a lot has changed, unfortunately, on that front. Um, And we'll, we'll get into the themes of this movie in just a sec. But I wanted to ask you about kind of the authenticity of it, because it seemed very rooted in getting the little details right. Like I know that uh, Fred Hampton Jr. and um, Akua Najiri, who is, uh, she was formerly known as Deborah Johnson, but the real life love interest of Fred Hampton, um, they were both on the set every day providing insight and whatnot for this so that they could get this right. Because apparently they've been, I mean, they've been approached about a number of uh, movies or TV shows or whatever. And this was the one that they wanted that they felt comfortable with kind of making this happen, making this story told. Um, And and they had to pitch it. The director said they had to pitch it as a biopic made from the FBI informant's perspective, because if it was just a Fred Hampton, like story on him, he was saying, he said something like shit, like we just barely got Harriet Tubman's biopic made like two years ago. (laughs) So the way that they had to pitch it to get it greenlit basically was there's going to be these dueling perspectives or it's going to be the FBI informant, um, you know, Billy O'Neill, and then there's going to be uh, Fred Hampton. And I felt like that kind of, it kind of paid off in the way that they did it because I mean, A, the two actors in this are just absolutely phenomenal. They kind of, I don't want to say they carry the film because it's very well done all around, but the like Kaluuya provides the heart and soul of the movie as far as the speeches that he gives and the way that this movie 
makes him more than just, you know, another historical figure in a biopic. They make him like a living, breathing man. Like the, the stuff about how his feet were cold and uh, what did he, what did he say? It was like a foot capitalist as far as he was trying to get her to warm his feet up. Yeah. Like just little touches like that, like him rehearsing Malcolm X's speech by himself. Um, Just those little moments that made him more like a, like a living, breathing human man, instead of just, you know, this guy that got shot back in the sixties. And then there's O'Neill who brings all of the tension to the film as far as, is he going to get found out? Like what's going to happen? Obviously we know what's going to happen in the very end. Right. Right. Spoiler alert to anyone who doesn't, you know, who hasn't taken a history course, but um, I feel like just the way that those clashed and the way that it played out, like the last sequence, that was, it was just swift and brutal and sadly extremely relevant because of what happened to Breonna Taylor just last year. Right. Um, But it didn't like revel in that. Like it didn't, you know, try and make some poignant statement. It just laid out what happened. And I feel like that made it more effective because it was just, it, it was impossible to watch that and not think of the events of the past year, just this racial reckoning that we've had over the last year because of so many things that haven't changed at all. I mean, did that, what was kind of your takeaway with, with the ending and, and just the way that they presented this movie as a whole? I'm going to go back to the very first thing you said, the way they had to get the movie greenlit. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just greenlight that movie just by saying the truth. You had to give a differing ang- a different angle just to get it done. Right. You know what I mean? So, so if, if they just walked in and said, "Hey, look, here's the story of Fred Hampton. Here's how all this went down. This is going to be a really good movie." That that wouldn't have flew because mm-hmm. even though that's the story, you have to give. You have to think about who you're selling the movie to. Yep. So. When you're selling that movie, you got to sell them on something that's not going to be, uh, quote unquote, too hardcore, mm-hmm. where they're going to, at the end of the day, want to make a profit from it. So it, it's, it's, this, it's this fine line. Spike Lee once said it, you have to sell a Black movie not being too Black, so that way the white money makers <laughs> can see it as a way they can get white folks to go to the movie, even mm-hmm. though it's a Black movie. So you yep. still got to have that, that, that balance. And I'll tell you what, what when, when I watched the movie um, and thinking about, about everything I learned about that situation, the first thing that came to mind was um, some of the stuff that went on this summer, going mm-hmm. up to the young lady that was shot in the uh, insurgency uh, at, at the Capitol. And, mm-hmm. and here's why. <clears throat> Everyone is shot, and I, I, people that I know and this is why I never delete anyone off Facebook or Twitter, because I believe it's the greatest truth-telling cleanser in the mm-hmm. world. You find out more about people you think <laughs> you know just by watching them through certain situations. So a lot of people said when, um, when, when things happen, well, if they weren't committing a criminal activity, this wouldn't happen to them in the first place. And then they put their past on trial. Mm-hmm. So even before anything happens, you know, Breonna Taylor, well, if she wasn't, if she never messed around with a drug dealer, this wouldn't happen to her. So then it made me think about when I saw this, that's what came to my mind. The young lady that was killed, um, she was trespassing. She was breaking the law. 
She was mm-hmm. possibly going to hurt a center, but all we heard was, oh, she was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. She, she did a lot of good things. She really wasn't going to hurt anybody going through the window. The story that was told was completely different. Whereas one could say, well, if she wasn't breaking the law, yep. this would never happen. <laughs> yep. But even when you go to what I'll call the most liberal media, like CNN, they're not, even they're not going to say that. Mm-hmm. But Fox has no problem. O- Own and, and Newsmax, they have no problem saying, well, Mr. Blake wouldn't have been shot if he wasn't breaking the law. So mm-hmm. even in today's news, there's still an angle because the angle for one is we want to recruit. The other angle is we want to re- we want to keep it the way it is, but we don't want to lose this audience. We don't want to go quite that far. And in mm-hmm. all honesty, when I thought when I saw that ending, and remembered from what I was thought, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Wow, even now, the city of Chicago to this day will not admit it. The city of Chicago won't even admit that when the Black Panther Party went back in the house and took pictures of the bullets, mm-hmm. riddled wall and did all that stuff, they still tried to get out of it by saying the officers were fired upon when they weren't. There was a gunshot, mm-hmm. one shot, that happened, and I just gave the whole movie away. One shot That's that okay. happened because the rifle exploded when the gentleman was killed. Mm-hmm. No into the ceiling. Other, into the ceiling, no other shots. So mm-hmm. even to this day, the, the Chicago PD is living by that lie. So mm-hmm. when you fast forward to me, what's changed? We number 45 lived by a lie every day. So oh, yeah. it was it what's you know, and, and I think what, what happens, G, is when people hear Black folks say nothing's changed, it's like, oh, here we go mm-hmm. again. Yep. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about there are some hardened perceptions that are in there that haven't changed. We're not mm-hmm. saying we're not in a better off situation. I mean, I was fortunate in the, the late 70s, early 80s to go to a Montessori school. That just didn't happen. I was a fortunate person. I live in a suburb. <laughs> I, li- I live in a house in a suburb where all the neighbors know each other. I'm mm. fortunate. So I, I get that stuff is better. But when you're driving home and you see an officer, when you have black sons, you have to give them the talk. Okay, if an officer pulls you over, this is what you, what you have to do. That hasn't changed. And that's mm. not saying all officers are bad. That's not the case. The whole Blue Lives Matter thing, I think, took a flying kite out the window when they were beating their own officers at the insurgent. <laughs> what yeah. we're saying is when you see someone doing something wrong and you're on the inside, you have to call it out because we can't call them all out. And I think it's funny that when people say, well, this this stuff, you know, you just got it on video. No, thank God for video because mm-hmm. it's been happening forever. Right now we can get it on video. (laughs) We're just showing you what's been happening forever. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the parts that are left out. And and the last part I'll say real quick, all we got to do is look at the stats in Phoenix. Um, Hispanic, I'll just say black and brown, people that are pulled over, their stops are longer than Mm -hmm. white males. Uh, They're more apt to be ticketed than white males. In schools, if if a black black and brown kid gets in a fight, they are more than likely expelled for three to five days where non-black and brown kids are usually in in school suspension for one day, 
These are stats mm -hmm. that are proven. You can't tell me that that systemically there's a change. There is right. no change. Before people do the, oh, here we go again. <laughs> They're playing the race card. No, I'm stating facts. Those, right. those are facts. So I, I know it's a lot that I gave you, but when I saw the end of that movie and I'm seeing them shot, that's what I thought. I thought of Malcolm X getting shot. Thought of Martin Luther King getting shot. Mega mm -hmm. Evers getting shot. And after a while, I just like, damn. <laughs> yeah. all, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> that's it's... how they all went out. And it's, it's, I think to your point, like, that's the frustrating thing, especially over the last year, trying to get people to understand this point is that when, when they go, oh, like everybody's upset, like, oh, when you're saying things haven't changed, it's not, and this is, this relates to NFL and NBA players, the whole national anthem stuff too, is you know, they say, well, all oh, these guys make millions of dollars. Like they, shouldn't they be thankful that they live in a country where they can make millions of dollars? You, just because someone makes money doesn't mean that they are immune from these types of horrible things that keep happening. Like we've seen NBA players. We saw Sterling Brown get held down by the police. It doesn't matter how much money you make or what your social standing is or what job you have, how popular or famous you might be as a black man in America. This is the reality that every black man and woman has to grow up with and internalize and worry about when, whenever the police are involved. And I feel like that is the thing that a lot of people don't understand. And I'm not sure what about it is so difficult to understand because I feel like it's the white guilt of like, not wanting to acknowledge that there's a problem because then you are complicit in it for not either not knowing about it or not doing something about it. And it's very uncomfortable. And it's, I feel like that's what makes this movie so effective is that you're watching it and the end is just swift and brutal. And, you know, obviously spoiler alert, but the way that Fred Hampton is murdered and betrayed is really hard to stomach because it's all building towards this. This guy gives these beautiful, powerful speeches that um, the actor was saying he literally, uh, he trained with an opera teacher yes. so that he could like work out his vocal cords and get those muscles right because, you know, he's giving these speeches all day for a filming session or whatever but he wanted to get his voice. He was listening to his old speeches. He wanted to get his voice and his cadence and his delivery down. And listening to a couple of those recordings, he really did a phenomenal job with that. But, you know, talking about how they got the film approved, it's funny because like you were saying, I feel like if they had known what would be in this movie, like they, like it's a pretty strong indictment of, you know, not just racism and police brutality, but also capitalism in general. Um, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't dive as much into Fred Hampton, Hampton's kind of Maoism, um, but it does. it's very anti-capitalist. It's very, um, you know, there's a lot of class conscious activism as far as the Rainbow Coalition that he created with those other groups. Um, and, and it's just well-timed as far as when it came out because of what happened last summer. Um, I, I think Hampton Jr. said something about people's political pores are more open now 
than they've been in the past because of everything that happened. So I, I feel like if there was a perfect time, at least in the last few years or so to make this movie, it was, it was now. Um, but l- let's talk about the actors real quick. What did you think of their performance? Cause I was saying, you know, I thought Kaluuya did an amazing job and Stanfield did a really good job kind of traversing that territory of like, you want to feel bad for him, but also at the same time, like you can't, but it's hard to not watch him when he's on the screen because he's just so captivating as far as him, you know, internally freaking out that he's going to be discovered versus right. trying to put on this face for the Black Panthers. What what did you think of these two actors in this movie? The, the car scene, when they asked him, uh, so he mm-hmm. pretended to be a FBI agent? He's like, uh, yeah. well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, why are the car then? And yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, okay, so real moment, you're like, is this a scene? Okay, what happens is when you're watching a movie, you know the ending? Mm. You know how it's gonna turn out. You know that that this is the this is the sellout person. You're yep. still wishing, man. I hope he don't start this car. Yeah. So that way they can find him out, and, <laughs> and you start doing the rooting like so they can get him out now. You know, and you yep. know he's gonna start the car. Mm. That's when, to me, that's when acting becomes incredibly believable. When mm. you're rooting for something not to happen that you know is gonna happen. Yep. That's what makes good actors actors you know if if you watch the the biography of malcolm x there are times when you're looking at malcolm x in that last scene and you're saying man don't don't give that speech yep. make sure they search everyone <laughs> because it's so believable and and that scene out of all the scenes i think what was it was the one for me that and um what's politics politics is war yes. without you know <laughs> without blood and what, what's war well, politics with blood i mean it's like yep. it's <laughs> When when you're so into it and you're like you're like oh damn that's a good point oh man that's that's when the actors uh, they got you mm-hmm. you're 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 reeled in and this movie is an award winning type movie mm-hmm. what what I fear is I don't know if you've seen the last cast to do the academies oh, so God. yeah I, 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 <laughs> so I don't know if this one's gonna quite make it to that because of the, the 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 truth and the content but those two scenes man had me so real dead i'm like man I, man never thought about it like that before or you know and man please catch this dude mm-hmm. catch him now yeah so <laughs> the, the the acting all all the way around and, and let's be honest i can't think of the gentleman's main name that played the fbi agent he played the total heel oh uh jesse Plemons. Jesse, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He played that role great. You're like going, man, someone find out this dude is an ass. Please, mm-hmm. please. So I, it, it's just a, a well-acted movie by everyone and everyone is put in the proper role. Uh, it, it's one of the movies where whoever did casting hit everything all yep. the way, all the way through. Because I know you watch movies where it's like, perfect, perfect. Oh, why? Yeah, I don't know I, about I, that one. Yeah. <laughs> This movie honestly did not have that. It didn't. And and to your point, Plemons, I thought, was the perfect amount of like, you know, Mr. Friendly Officer, but really he's menacing. He's threatening you. And what he believes is fucked up once he gets into it. Like when he was talking yep. about um, when he kind of inadvertently compared the Black Panthers to the KKK, he was kind of 
I felt like he was like, you know, those old middle school and high school history books that I learned from come to life as far as like portraying the Panthers as these, you know, radicals, these armed militant, like dangerous people, when that's not the reality, they did a lot of great work, you know, that was never recognized because they were just portrayed in that way. Um, and that's, he compared them to being basically made them the black version of the KKK. Um, so he, he did a really good job of just being this understated, but really despicable character when you get down yep. to brass tacks. Um, yeah, I, I love that line about the war and, and politics. I also really like the one, um, this was kind of the one that I was, I wrote it down because I was like, wow, they pitched this to a bunch of capitalists to make them money, this studio, but it literally says life, liberty, happiness. It's all right there in the Declaration of Independence. But when poor people demand it, it's a contradiction. It's not democracy, it's socialism. That right. was, I was like, okay, damn. Like, and a lot of these things that they pulled, um, you know, a badge is scarier than a gun. Reform is just the masters teaching the slaves how to be better slaves. Like things like that are just, there are a lot of lines like that in this movie that I just had to jot them down because I was like, damn, that's good. <laughs> this is incredible. And then the, the, obviously the speech that Kaluuya gives in that packed house, um, mm -hmm. when you see kind of Bill O'Neill, his dedication to what he's about to do crack a little bit. Um, cause he's, he's got his fist raised and you can see that he's believing what he's saying, but he's also Jesse Clemens is eyeing him. Yeah. He's too far in. He can't come out now. Um, and it's kind of heartbreaking because Lakeith Stanfield was talking about it in an interview as far as he doesn't want to judge any man. He feels bad for O'Neill um, because, and then this is, this comes in into play at the very end of the movie when it shows a real life interview with him, because I didn't truly understand, understand where he stood by the end of the movie, as far as, you know, what he actually believed, how much of, of Fred Hampton, and his message he bought into and how much guilt he felt about it because he kept informing for the FBI after Hampton. Mm -hmm. um, and then he's giving that interview at the very end and it, he's like playing it off. Like he contributed to the cause despite what he did. And then when that interview aired on PBS um, it says at the very end that he committed suicide that night. So it's very, uh, heavy as far as it's <laughs> Judas and the Black Messiah is a very apt title for this because I've always wondered you know thinking about I'm a Catholic so thinking about the story of Judas and the way that he betrayed Jesus and the guilt that he felt but also the horrible thing that he did it's it's hard to navigate that pity and, and it's hard to feel pity for someone that does something right. that commits betrayal like that. Um, yeah, and you you could you know what and, and and what's crazy is it's almost like I think I helped, and then that PBS interview was I believe what led him to commit suicide was that was the first time he saw his own words, mm -hmm. and sometimes when you see your own words and you see them come I know this is, sounds basic but you see them coming out of your mouth you're like crap mm -hmm. that, that that's me and 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 I'm saying that coming from you know, working in finance for forever and you take the people that work for you 
and you bring them in, you let them listen to themselves. And they're like, you could tell them a thousand times, mm. but then when they hear it, they're like, oh crap, I really do say that. It, yeah. Those words are coming out of my mouth. And I, that I think was too real of a moment because all that guilt, all the people's lives that you impacted for someone who wasn't going to use it for the better. You mm. know, it, 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 it's, it, it'd be one thing if he was helping uh, uh, the other side because they were going to do something for the better. No, mm. they were taking someone out that was actually enlightening people to what they were doing, how they were being, the system was, was using them. Uh, it's, listen, it's not a coincidence. And I, I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but I know you've mm. heard of the, the Caprini Green housing project. Yeah. So they put the Caprini Green housing projects on, on the street called Division about six blocks from Lake One. But it's a place you get everybody together. Seemed like a great idea. Mm-hmm. Then the 90s roll around, I'm like, hold up, oh, time out. Why did we put this housing project six blocks from the lakefront? We could use this property mm-hmm. and make a whole lot of money. So why don't we figure out a way to get them all out of the city into low rises, into some suburbs, mm-hmm. and let them go and we'll take this property? And everyone is like, oh, that's awesome. They got rid of this. Well, sort of awesome because you got rid of a you got rid of a, a, a situation where you had people living in basic cages, but you didn't get rid of it for the purpose of truly helping them. Mm-hmm. You got rid of it for your own capitalism. And so yep. what he did was he helped adjudicate a, a someone, but not for helping him or the cause, but to allow someone else to fulfill their agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how. It has to be looked, and I think that's the real that possibly mentally, finally, after all those years, saying it itself, hit him. He didn't do it for anyone mm-hmm. other than himself and someone else. And at the end, it just too much weight. Right. It's If you haven't seen it yet, I, I wanted to give it a few days before we recorded this segment, give people the time to watch this movie. But if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Probably... I have a very good feeling this is going to be one of the best movies of the year um, and one of my personal favorites for sure. Just the acting, the storyline, just the um, the way that this that these real life events were dramatized but not taken over the top. It just presents what happened, this tragic story, and the way that it's filmed is incredible. It's just a very, very good movie. Um, for my G rating, I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10, which that is the highest score we've had so far on the G-rated segment. Um, Paul, what kind of score would you give this movie? I'm a hard movie critic. Yeah. But I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you. This is a must-see. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's right up there at about 9 out of 10, too. I'm, I, G, it's really hard for me to watch movies like this. I, I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. be honest with you. Um, yeah. to, to watch this, um, there was a, a John Singleton movie he did. Uh, with with the uprising in Florida, it's hard for me to watch these because history-wise, we always separate. We're in the middle of Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And what half of America fails to realize is Black history is American history. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I see these movies, to me, it's like, man, we got to relive this again because yeah. for whatever reason, historians and scholars refuse to put this in the curriculum 
Mm-hmm. You know, you have to find out the Fred Hampton story, to find out the Metcar Ever story. You have to take a Black History class. Yeah, and that that to me is disheartening because they want to teach every Black kid growing up Martin Luther King. Look, Martin Luther King is honestly, we pledge the same fraternity. We we, I mean, he's the man. Mm-hmm. But partly the reason why you can celebrate Martin is because he's safe. He was nonviolent. He taught lessons. He was mm-hmm. a minister. Very safe. That's, he wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. So I, I wish you wouldn't have to watch this movie or take a special class to find out. Because what do we hear about slavery? Oh, that was a black eye. Well, it may have been a black eye for you, but it was a yeah. bunch of murders for me. Mm-hmm. So, so we, I think as a country, until we embrace that slavery was bad for everybody in terms of what it meant to where the country is now. So we admit that you can't give someone a 200 year head start and now run an even race and expect the person behind to catch up. I think until we start doing that, these type of movies have always been difficult for me to watch. And especially this one, as good as it is, and I'm glad I watched it, I'll, watch, I'll probably watch it again, to be honest with you. Yeah. But you're reliving history that you know mm-hmm. and you're seeing some of the details that you heard about actually right in front of your face so i just wish that we always want this country to heal we always want this country to do better you can't do better unless you know where you made your mistakes and you don't know where you made your mistakes until black history becomes all history and i think that's what this movie i hope will continue to, to teach our historians and our and our book writers for school absolutely i mean it's uh it's something that came up last year especially when you know names like emmett till would come up when the tulsa race war would come up and i i consider myself someone that's pretty well informed but the history that we grew up with in schools even as recently as you know i graduated high school in 2009 even that recent it's so whitewashed. You know, I remember, I remember in middle school, we had a world history textbook that had a picture of an Egyptian, you know, like Sphinx on it. And the dude's face is white. There were white people in Egypt, man. Like, it's, and, and it never struck us as like, well, that's weird until we like actually thought about it. Think about, think about the old Westerns. The Native Americans yeah. were all played by white guys. Yeah. I mean, if you, it's like even even then, and I think for a lot of people that doesn't, it's no big deal because it's just a movie. But no, mm. that was a true reflection of what's going on. Hell, hell Elizabeth Taylor played Cleopatra. Yeah, so damn well, <laughs> Cleopatra didn't look like Elizabeth Taylor. But yeah. but those are the things, and I think we just have. I feel better about your generation and the younger generation because my generation, even though I was born in '69. I still growing up in the seventies and the eighties still felt some of that, you know, mm-hmm. because it wasn't, it didn't just disappear. It wasn't like, Oh, right. you can go get a job. Everything is, is great. It, it, it didn't just disappear, but mm-hmm. your generation and like my sons, I'm hoping it's getting better because when you look, you see more people opening their eyes and as opposed to saying, that's not fair saying, okay, why? Like what happened? Like me mm-hmm. and you are cool, but why, why do you feel this way? And I think that's the part that's that was missing. And I think there's open dialogue between people now saying, 
hey, what what happened? Like what? Why? Or that's really messed up. Can you tell me about it? Not just wow, that's really messed up. Want to go get something to eat? Yeah. I, I think I think <laughs> that's that's the difference. We're willing to discuss, and and as long as you're able to do that, there's gonna be differences. I think that's what makes the world good. No, mm. everybody loves gumbo. You don't love gumbo because there's one ingredient. You love gumbo because there's everything thrown in, but you appreciate all those parts thrown in. And that's what makes it good. And I think as people, we have to stop saying, well, anyone that says, I don't see any color. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah. Hell, <laughs> I'm sure I rock dreadlocks better than you would if you got them. So you, there's definitely a difference. But instead of saying that, understand there is a difference, but it's those differences that make us come together and what makes us cool and if you look at your your friends or the people you associate with, if you associate with a bunch of different people, you're usually pretty in with because you want to find out different people in different cultures. When you mm -hmm. just deal with one group of people, yep. all your stereotypes live and they get mm -hmm. bigger and bigger because those people, theirs get bigger and bigger. So it's up to us to be able to do that. And that's why I like little kids, man, put, put three-year-olds together. They don't give mm -hmm. a crap. They nope. just want to go on the slide and share spit. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. it. It's, it's the older people that messes them up. And the good yep. thing is your generation and the next generation, they're not as messed up as those other ones. So there's going to be less and less, hopefully, of that, of that happening. Right. And it, it is, it's something that's taught, not innate, you know, that whole, that idea of being taught these horrible beliefs and just kind of that ignorance of not you know, I don't see color, that kind of stuff. That's not how the world actually works. But um, these types of conversations are great for me because I feel like it's it's good to, you know, just shut up and <laughs> let somebody else talk and listen to their perspective. Um, so I really do appreciate you coming on the show, giving your perspective to me and to this great movie. Everybody you need to go out and see it. Um, it's going to be hard to follow this up with uh, on our next show. We're going to do the 30 coins finale, but um, <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Tell the people where they can read your work or listen to you on the sports cave. Uh, the sports cave.com cave is with the K and the cave show. Uh, part of the sports cave.com is on every day at one o'clock. Just go to the uh, sports cave.com site hit listen live. And there we are. You can actually even call in now. I'll let your listeners know. If you start to say something out of pocket, I will hang up on your ass. <laughs> and, and I like my voice better than yours. So if you call, you may not get through, but keep calling. Maybe I'll be, I'll be generous one day. <laughs> but <laughs> And then the Twitter is, and the Instagram and all that is uh, all social media platforms at the Sports Cave uh, with the K. So Yoji, anytime, man. You know, you're my, you're my, you're my dude since day one, bro. I, I appreciate coming on. I appreciate you having me. And, Anytime you need anything, man, you know, right where I'm at. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Uh, for everyone that's going to do it for today's show, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to write me a review, tell your friends, subscribe if you haven't already. Um, and let me know two to three movies or TV shows you've watched recently, and maybe we'll talk about them on the show. But that's going to do it for today's episode. I'm Gerald Borgay signing off. <laughs>